Psalm 62, a song that I have entitled, The Rock of My Soul in Trying Times. In Israel's days of glory, uh, there were many songwriters that were composing beautiful music to be uh, sung by the temple choir, as well as to teach the people how to approach their God in worship. I found out that David actually wrote half of the Psalter, half of the 150 Psalms we have, uh, Asaph and the sons of Korah and even Moses uh, and Solomon wrote the rest of them. And still today, we're so thankful that godly men and women uh, put these songs to music because we don't have the original musical scores of these uh, ancient songs. I wish we did. It'd be fun to sing those in Hebrew, wouldn't it? But uh, we're grateful that we have the opportunity to uh, often sing these songs. And as you can see by the superscription, if if your Bibles are open to Psalm 62, right under the title Psalm 62, there's a superscription that talks about David being the author of this psalm, and he's writing it for Jeduthun, the choir master or the music director, to put this song to music to lead Uh, the temple choir, and so forth. He was a a Levite, especially chosen by David to produce the beautiful sounds that would surround the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. In uh, 1 Chronicles 16, verse 41, it says that Jeduthun and Heman were chosen and expressly named to give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. These two men had trumpets and cymbals for the music and instruments for sacred song. So David entrusted these inspired words into the hearts and skills of men who could both instrumentally and vocally teach the people how to approach God in worship. Their appointment was during the early days of David's reign and after he had built the tabernacle in Jerusalem, not the temple. He wasn't allowed to build the temple, as you recall. The tabernacle was a temporary shelter for the Ark of the Covenant, which he had brought up into Jerusalem with great fanfare. And scholars believe that this psalm was actually written during the time of Absalom's rebellion against David, so that David was now in exile out of Jerusalem And this is the context in which he's writing this psalm. A very fragile time, very uncertain time for Israel, and certainly a time of testing for David. So in the flow of conversation in this psalm, if you have an ESV study Bible, it gives you a very easy flow here that talks, that that, um, presents it first from David's heart. He's expressing his Uh, his very soul, then he addresses his enemy, and then he comes back to himself, then he brings in the congregation to encourage them, and finally he addresses the trustworthiness of the God that he loves. So if I were to summarize this in a single sentence, it would be that the rock of our salvation, we've already sung about this morning, secures us through adversity, through the trials of life. In verses 1 and 2, we find him affirming his own salvation, and I'm putting this in first person here, making it personal for us as the Psalms were intended. 
And it begins with a very God-focused waiting. I don't know about you, but I have learned that waiting is a very essential part of life. It's a difficult part of life, isn't it? Because what does it teach us? It teaches us patience. That's, that's what it's designed to do. We find ourselves waiting eagerly for a lot of things, don't we? I remember 53 years ago, I was eagerly awaiting uh, my wedding and praying that the Lord would not come before our wedding date. <laughs> I know that no one else here has ever prayed that, right? And then, after you're married, then you anxiously await the arrival of your first child and then all the succeeding ones. There are some serious things to wait for in life, aren't there? Like uh, the results of a medical exam, like the uh, election results that we're all praying for, or perhaps a son or daughter's return from military service overseas safely. Those require some serious waiting. Listen to what David is waiting for. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. So it's interesting that in Hebrew, that first line is, my soul is silence unto God. <clears throat> One commentary put it this way, David is forcibly describing his complete, unmurmuring submission in quiet faith to God. His whole being is one great stillness before him, unbroken by any clamorous passions. That's what it means to have your soul silent before God. And I think that can only happen if we are truly, fully God-focused. And frankly, that is almost superhuman, isn't it? It doesn't come naturally. It comes supernaturally in a, in a personal relationship with God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the next phrase there tells us why he is waiting, and that is he recognizes that from him, from God, my, comes my salvation. <clears throat> it wasn't something, some person, or some event that David was waiting for. It was God himself, not God plus anything else. Because God alone gives that eternal life that brings the assurance of, of our future, the assurance of God's presence with us regardless what comes at us. God-focused waiting is living in readiness for God to do something, for God to act, staying put in anticipation of his next move. Now, I think that dogs actually have learned this better than we humans have. This is our American Eskimo dog named Shasta. And Rachel only has to dangle some... Uh, refreshment in front of him, some treat, and say, stay, sit. And immediately he sits down and just looks at her. He watches that treat. She can disappear around a corner in the house, totally out of sight, very quietly, and he's sitting there, <laughs> head cocked, listening, and he has learned from puppy days that he needs to stay and sit, because if he does so, he will get the reward that Apparently, his master is promising him. And all, he's waiting for those wonderful words, Shasta, come, and you should see him. He takes off, he can hardly get traction on the kitchen floor, and he, he finds his reward. He's rewarded for his waiting. Now, um, obviously, 
Life is a little bit more complicated for us as humans, isn't it? We're not just waiting for treats from God, as if he's some sugar daddy. When we need some action, when we need some solutions, when we need some deliverance, what's our natural tendency? Hopefully it's prayer. Hopefully it's waiting in silence. But often we try to seek our own solutions in life, don't we? Maybe the Internet has something to help us out here to solve our problem. Maybe I, maybe I, I get counsel from a friend rather than seeking God. Maybe I'll just throw money at this situation. That always helps, doesn't it? <clears throat> or maybe we just withdraw into ourselves, angry at God for not acting sooner or the way that we want him to. And we withdraw into this empty soul that has been neglecting prayer and the word of God for far too long. So what is David's plan of attack? Wait? <laughs> He didn't have any self-esteem books to read. He didn't have any seminars to go to. He didn't have any Facebook friends to dump on to get counsel from them for the specific problem that he was facing. Instead, he remembers where salvation comes from, and he returns to the core of his relationship with God that will allow him to quietly, patiently, and peacefully wait in silence for God to move. It's interesting that in verse 5, as we'll look at in a minute here, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. Salvation and hope go together, don't they? Is there anything higher or more important in life to wait for than God himself? We see in verse 2 here that God is our rock-solid security. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Notice that the verse does not say God is like a rock, God is like a fortress. No, he actually uses the present tense verb, being verb, God is, God is. And that is, is so important for us. <clears throat> because what it's doing is equating these three as the essence of God's character in relationship to salvation. Salvation makes God our rock and our fortress, and the phrase God is occurs six times in this psalm alone. The great I am, God is. The great I am is our rock. The great I am is our salvation, our fortress that we run to. So what does a rock symbolize to you? I see it as a symbol of strength, stability, immovability. A fortress is a stronghold of defense against attack, so both images actually represent that safety and that security and that untouchability in the face of the problems, the trials, the adversities that come our way, which comes in all shapes and sizes, some anticipated, sometimes totally by surprise. Some of life's adversities come upon us with the suddenness and ferocity of a major earthquake, don't they? Something we don't see coming. A car accident, a health diagnosis that you were totally not expecting, spousal problems, spousal abandonment, abuse, a heart attack, a Christian leader you've been trusting, suddenly going woke. See, when the world 
turns to quicksand and our friends desert us, God is that, is that rock. He's that solid ground for us to stand on and always has been. God as our refuge means that he is our protector from danger, from distress, from calamity. That we can, when we can see the storm clouds gathering and as the, uh, the darkness gathers and, and we, there is nothing and the wind picks up, there is nothing that we can do physically to stop that from happening. All we can do is pray. And today, we are facing some of the fiercest storms in our culture, in our life, that ever, I've ever seen in our, in our lifetime. Decay, moral decay, ethical decay, the rapid decay and uh, persecution against Christians, hostility to Christ, His church, uh, would you have believed just two years ago that we'd be facing the things that we face today? So in times like these, God is our refuge, our defense, a fortress and a strong tower that we can run to, but not in fear as Satan would want us to. But in faith and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Remember that our security does not come from who we are in ourselves, but who we are in Christ. Not what we know, not who we know. The rock of our salvation is our security in times of adversity. So David's song now changes, and knowing that he is secure in God's salvation alone, he says, well, we need to acknowledge that we have an enemy that's always undermining us. Recognize him. And understand the enemy's plan. This is the way he saw how the enemy was attacking him. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? Who were David's enemies at this time? Was it the Philistines, the Midianites, and all those other ites that David conquered while he was king? No, his enemies at this time were his fellow Israelites. His kinsmen, who he once ruled over so faithfully, now turning against him and choosing to follow this young whippersnapper who thinks he can be king. So the, the question of how long is not really looking for a time element here. I see it as actually a mockery of his enemies. Because where are David's faith feet standing? On the solid rock of God's promises to him and his salvation. Is that movable? No, it's not. So he's going to stand there. He knows his weakness. He knows that in himself he's like a tottering wall that can be battered down, but not in faith, not in the strength that he receives from God himself. <clears throat> they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. Yeah, let's, let's knock David off his throne. Let's humiliate him. This is coming from his own son. His own son. Even though God had blessed Israel through David so much, and they were living in prosperity, the devil inspired a son to conquer his, his, his father, thinking he could. So this is far more than a family crisis. This is far more than a father-son uh, spat. This is a political coup. This is a national tragedy for Israel. <clears throat> a young narcissist 
trying to rule a great nation. When narcissists rule, evil prospers. Satan is a destroyer. He's not a builder. He's never done one single good thing. And when he sees a good leader arise, he wants to remove him, discredit him, knock him off his throne, and instead promote those who are promoting themselves, seeking uh, glory and strength for themselves. And he's more than happy to oblige those who are seeking that. So the enemy has a plan. He recognizes that. And he also needs to understand the enemy's pleasure, verse 4. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse Selah. So David felt this firsthand, didn't he, from his own son, spreading lies about him, making him an enemy of the state only worthy of being killed. So the same deception, I believe, rules in the hearts of political leaders today. There's nothing new. They are two-faced hypocrites. He's saying they take pleasure in falsehood. So lying to them is like having a Sunday afternoon picnic down by the lake. It just brings such joy to them. So is it any wonder that the liars don't even want to debate those who are telling the truth? Because that would rob them of their joy, of the lies that they're hanging on to. They spread fear by oppressing the truth, thinking that they themselves are the only arbiters of truth. I like what H.L. Mencken said, the urge to save humanity is almost always a false front for the urge to rule. Selah. Think about this. Think about the lies that are coming to us in these areas of our present culture. Abortion. Um, There's actually a gubernatorial candidate in one of the southern states, I won't mention her name, that says that uh, abortion actually will help our or, or, or deflate our inflation. It will actually help stop inflation. So if we kill our kids, our economy will pick up. Can you believe the kind of thinking that's going into world leaders today, our own country's leaders? Of course, climate change, that's, that's a real humdinger. Racism, critical race theory, gender fluidity and identity, socialism, oh yeah, the answer to all of mankind's problems. Evolution has been discredited so much by true science. And then we, sadly, we even have to add this word, medicine, into the lies that are being thrown at us these days. <clears throat> the science uh, of these globalists, the powerful people who are making big decisions, and there's a whole bunch more involved in the globalism movement, can you trust their science? Can you trust what they say? The only way that you can measure what they say as against truth or falseness is to to start where? Start with God's word. That will be your source of strength and wisdom to know when you are being duped by science. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the way. Jesus is life. Then in this next section of verses 5 to 7, we, he, he is reaffirming his, his source of hope. And there's a repeat here of the truths we just looked at a few minutes ago. Look at verse 5, verses verse 1. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. I notice three things that are different between these two verses. 
He adds the O in there as kind of intensifying the self-talk to make sure it's, it's embedded deeply in his heart, mind, and will to recognize the truth that he's talking about and take it to heart. Wait in silence for him versus verse 1, which was just a, a present active statement, my soul waits. Here, he's commanding his soul to wait. Don't stop waiting. Don't jump the gun. Don't try to push God's hand and, and, and move that clock Ahead, because God's timing is always right. Always right. And then he changes the object of these two from salvation to hope. And of course, salvation and hope are interrelated. You can't have hope apart from God's salvation. It's the consequence of salvation. Faith, of course, is the assurance of the things we hope for, the conviction of things not yet seen. So we hope for what God has promised us, but is not yet visible to us, but it will be someday. Now let me ask you, see what David is doing here. He's, he's repeating things, which is very, very common in Hebrew literature. There's the parallelism idea uh, that repeats itself in different ways to reinforce the truth. Does repeating the truth help you to grow in your Christian life? I am so grateful for Pastor Jeremy constantly bringing out the truths of our salvation. When we are going through a book, oh, there it is again, there it is again, and he keeps repeating the same beautiful truths because the Bible is so consistent with itself. And every time he does that, that reinforces that truth into my own soul, and I hope it does to you. David is doing that to himself here. And he's teaching us how to do that as well. <clears throat> if you've ever slipped on an icy road and had an accident or come close to it, you're aware of the danger that's there. And it, the first time has taught you something. So when the next experience comes and you see that glisten on a dark winter night on the road, that black ice that we all love so much, that has almost taken my life once or twice, you're aware of the danger. You take your foot off the gas. You're ready to pump the brake just a little to make sure that you're going to be able to handle that next corner. David knew his weakness. He knew that he could fall in his own. And so that's why he's commanding his soul to wait. Now, verse 6, of course, looks very much like verse 2. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken. Look at the difference between these two verses. What difference do you see? It's the adverb there that doesn't fit into verse 6. Why did he leave off the word greatly the next time he repeats this to his own soul? I believe it's because he realizes that the size of the problem does not matter to God. Large quake, small quake, the rock never moves. Any size adversity is no problem to God. He only is my rock. Salvation never moves. I will always be safe in him. Verse 7. So here's a reminder to reflect on him. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. 
God is my all in all. He is all I need. And I, I love the fact that he's included this word glory in this reminder, because glory is really the essence of God's character manifest. When we glorify God, we are manifesting the character of God in our life. It's who he is, and it's who he wants us to be. <clears throat> God's glory is seen in what he has created and in all his mighty works. We took this picture two weeks ago when we were camping up at uh, Artist Point. And in spite of the heavy smoke that was up there, this picture, I believe, reveals and, and pictures a, a principle of life, and that is that God's character is most clearly seen when his people obey him. Remaining quietly, submission to him. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, John 17, um, there's, there's a beautiful illustration of, of the interrelationship between God the Father, God the Son, and we as his children. And Jesus is praying in his last night of, on this earth that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given them that they may be one even as we are one. What a precious commodity to possess, the very glory of God that he's sharing with us to present him to the world that needs to see the reality of Jesus Christ in our life. So when adversity tests our faith, let's do what David did. Let's reaffirm our faith in him as our salvation our solid rock in times of adversity. So up until now, David's been talking to his own soul, and then he addressed, of course, his, his enemy, and he recognized that there's, there's nothing on this earth that he can put his faith and trust in to get him through this life other than the solid rock of Jesus Christ. But now he realizes he needs to encourage his congregation. <clears throat> and he says that prayer is our safe place. Verse 8. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. For God is the refuge for us, Selah. When it was discovered that Sal Absalom was fueling this rebellion against his father, that put all of David's friends in great jeopardy. And everyone had to leave <laughs> the city that loved David, his advisors, his friends, uh, the military that, that followed David and their families, the priests, the musicians, all were in as much danger as David was. And they needed the same kind of peace that David was drawing from realizing and reinforcing his faith in the Lord. And he says, pour out, pour out your heart before him. That literally means just to empty yourself of yourself and let him fill you with his strength. Now, that doesn't contradict in any way the remaining silence before God, because I think they fit together. You're emptying yourself before God, and you're letting his, him and his word and the truth about him to fill that, that void. <clears throat> and if you've, uh, if you've walked with Jesus for any amount of time in your life at all, then you've got your stories of God answering prayer, don't you? You've seen God do things that only God can do. You've seen him answer in ways that 
surprised you? <laughs> we have in our ministry. I found this interesting illustration from history uh, about a battle I've never heard about before. In 1801, Lord Nelson laid siege to the city of Copenhagen, and his military was just blasting this city with rockets and bombs and mortars. Kind of sounded like uh, Fort McHenry in, his, in the way he attacked this city. And the city of Copenhagen burned. It was just devastated. Great Britain just laid it waste. And a few days later, an officer was walking through this destruction, and he came across a single house that was still standing, untouched by any mortar, by any fire. Standing there as a, as a blatant testimony of something. And so he asked a, a, a passerby, well, what's the deal with this house? Who, who does it belong to? And he said, well, it belongs to a Quaker. He refused to go and fight. Instead, he chose to remain in his house with his family in prayer during the entire bombardment. And this is the only house that was still standing. And the officer said, wow, truly, this man was protected by God. Rachel and I have experienced God's protection, his, his answer to prayers in unique ways uh, in our ministry. When we face trials that we never would have dreamed we'd ever face in ministry, and interestingly, many of them came from fellow Christians. And that's a sad commentary. That's why we, as God's children, need to remain diligent in our faith and trust in God to answer prayer, because he answered our prayers far differently than what we were praying. And praise God, that's why we're back in Bellingham instead of someplace on the East Coast. <laughs> People share the same spiritual poverty, is what he's saying in verse 9. David, he reminds them that God is the same refuge regardless of your rank in life. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion in the balances, they go up together and are lighter than a breath. Interesting commentary on social status, isn't it? doesn't matter if you're a king or a pauper. We all are in the same status before God, all in need of the redemption that he alone can give through his son. The total weight of king and pauper together amounts to nothing but a puff of air. We're all bound for hell apart from God's grace, and uh, there are some certain tyrants on this earth that are going to experience judgment for how they've mistreated their position. Then he adds a very important command here. He says, worldly wealth is not our hope. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set your not, not your heart on them. So don't Gain your wealth through wickedness. And, and I was trying to think, why, why is David talking about this when he's in this exile situation, very tenuous, his faith is being tested, and it's almost like he's projecting himself back on that throne. He knows that God's going to replace his son. He knows he's going to be back there. So he's, he's thinking of how can he exhort his people to make sure that they don't act the way that those people are acting that we don't try to gain riches the way the world is gaining riches, through extortion and, and wrong means. It's empty. It leads to a hopeless life. 
And uh, Absalom had to find that out too, didn't he? Remember, he was running from David's army when he realized he was losing. Got on his mule, ran through the oak trees, and his lovely hair got caught in the low-lying branches of an oak tree. And there he hung until Joab came along and used him as target practice. It was an ignominious end. Don't try to usurp what is not yours, is what he's saying there. Then he also says, if you are blessed with riches, don't let them rule you. The Messiah himself, a thousand years later, would talk to his disciples in Matthew 6, 19 and say, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth. Don't make that your priority. Make eternal things your priority. Those are the things that are going to last forever. Invest yourself in God's kingdom. You know, if we, if we seek greater earthly reward now, it really could negate the possibility of us receiving eternal rewards when we face Jesus in heaven someday. You see, surviving either poverty or wealth with a pure heart takes faith. And we come to the final section here in verses 11 to 12 where we need to acknowledge God's trustworthiness in this whole process, this whole situation. The assurance of God's power is found in verse 11. It's an interesting statement here. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. So when you see this once-twice phrase, he's not really keeping track of how many times he's heard this. What he's doing is reinforcing the certainty of the truth he's about to tell you, and that is that God is all-powerful. And that truth alone, my friends, should, fear us, should free us from all fear and doubt when we see a culture declining so rapidly around us and, and the evil one collecting power like a snowball going down a steep mountainside, <clears throat> power belongs to God. It's his to give and it's his to take away, isn't it? Satan is an illusionist. He's a liar. He's a power monger. And uh, he can only do what God's sovereignty allows him. He's the prince of the power of the air, and he's sucking truth out of the airwaves like a vacuum cleaner. But he's on a leash, and he doesn't want you to know that. He doesn't want you to believe that. And the sovereignty of God is that which is binding him. And the only way to avoid his powerful deceptions in our life is to plant our feet solidly on our trust in the one alone who possesses all power. There's a second uh, major certain truth here, and that is the assurance of God's steadfast love. And I'm so glad he includes this. It's one thing for God to be a great, loving, or a great powerful God, but he's balanced with this amazing love. This Hebrew word chesed is, is such a beautiful word in the Hebrew. It speaks of a covenant mercy, a loving kindness, a loyal love. God's love will never forsake us. Never leave us. Never abandon us because we are his children. Has God's love provided for you and protected you? Has God's love also allowed you pain? And that pain is to refine us, to refine us, to purify us. I like this illustration that someone I just found the other day. An umbrella cannot stop the rain 
but it, always, it allows us to stand in the storm. Our faith in God may not remove the trials, but it gives us strength to overcome them. A friend sent me this a few weeks ago. Trust in his timing. Rely on his promises. Wait for his answers. Believe in his miracles. Rejoice in his goodness. And relax in his presence. Wouldn't it be good if we could all do that? No matter what the trials? <clears throat> we come to this final thing, and that is the assurance that reward awaits those who are faithful in service. You will render to a man according to his work. God is watching. God is recording all the faithful works you do for his kingdom. There's coming a day of judgment for every single believer to receive rewards for those works done after you were saved that honor and glorify God. You're not going to be judged for your sin because that was all nailed to the cross when you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But sadly, there are going to be many believers in heaven who think that they deserve something but will receive nothing because all their good works were done for themselves, for their own glory. It's wood, hay, and stubble, according to Corinthians. And that's a very sad thing for, for them. So what should our response be this morning? I'm I've summarized just five things. There's probably many more things. But just remember to welcome adversity as a friend. James 1, verses 2 and 3 tell us that. Life's crushing afflictions may be the best thing that ever happened to your character. Secondly, make sure that your security is in Christ alone, standing in his saving faith alone and not trying to do that which you think will earn you salvation. Third, wait for God's plan to unfold. Don't subvert it with impatience. His timing is always right. Learn to distinguish worldly deceptions from God's truth by feeding daily on it. Because what is Satan throwing at us every single day? Falsehood. Falsehood. And the more falsehood is repeated, the more it becomes plausible. And that's why so many are being deceived today. They're not hearing the truth over and over again. They're hearing the lies. So ground yourself in the Word of God. And then finally, encourage fellow Christians who are experiencing the difficulties in life right now. You may know some in your own family, your own neighbor, um, maybe someone in the church. We know that we have millions of brothers and sisters around the world that are experiencing severe adversity. You don't know their names, but you learn of them through the Christian uh, publications and organizations that are trying to reach out to them in their time of crisis. And maybe, who knows, maybe for such a time as this, God has granted you and me a little extra to share with others. Because there may be coming a time in our own country, and I think it may be just around the corner, where we're going to find a lot of people in need of our help, our prayer, our encouragement. So let's remember... The rock of our salvation, the God who has saved us, the God who has sent his son to die on the cross is the only one that can secure us through whatever adversity comes our way. Let's pray.
Father, we want to thank you so much that we have a confident foundation upon which to live our lives. Lord, we admit that sometimes we want to jump off and, and, and build our own and think that we're going to land safely and we land in quicksand and rapidly find out, Lord, that we are we're unable in ourselves to both to save ourselves and to relieve ourselves from the adversities that come our way. May we find in you, Lord, that solace, that place that uh, alone gives us the assurance, the hope that that's, can allow us to face a future of, with such uncertainty. Thank you, God, that you are that kind of God, both powerful and loving, to lead us into a future that uh, is, is not pleasant on this earth, but we can look forward to the eternity with you in heaven. So thank you, Lord. We love you. Appreciate your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.